Let's turn to Romans chapter 1, please. There are many times when we experience the grief and the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ, a man of sorrows in this world, in this evil age. But there are also many times when we joyfully experience the pleasure of God through the Holy Spirit. And one of those times, probably one of the most significant times where that pleasure is manifested is in collaboration, the co-laboring between believers. And I'm going to be speaking about that a little bit today. But that pleasure is always experienced when Jeremy and Brandy come to visit us. And of course, Patrick and Rhonda and little Mason. Because their very presence encourages blesses, manifests the life and livingness of Jesus Christ. And it's hard to describe as a pastor how much I experience God the Holy Spirit's pleasure in our co-laboring together. We are co-laborers together with God, as 1 Corinthians 3, nine says, in his field. And it's never a one-man show or a two-man show or a committee's show or one man or one woman or anything of the kind. It's co-laboring, co-laboration. And I wish, don't worry, it's not for applause this time, but would Jeremy and Brandy please stand up. I want to pray for your, just pray for you together. Turn around so everybody can see your faces because when they pray for you, they're going to just do a, do a 360 or something or as close as you can. <laughs> um. Let's just, I want to pray for them. They're going to be traveling today, so I know you got a bolt shortly after, but Father, I express my gratitude to you through Jesus Christ for Jeremy and Brandy and for the unseen labors and unseen trials and testings that they endure along with us. And for the privilege that you've granted me and Tetelestai Phalanx here in New Kensington with co-laboring together with them. I pray that you'll sustain them and bless them and strengthen them in their very busy schedules and in their new family ties with little Mason. I pray for a safe and pleasant journey back to where your great salt shaker has shaken them. To Knoxville and grant them a constant sense of your assuring presence, a continual sense of confident conviction and things hoped for, and a confident knowledge that they will always know that we are in their hearts as they are in our hearts, as Second Corinthians seven three says, both to live and to die together, to die and to live in that order. For we live unto the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you also specifically for Jeremy's work in creating and sustaining, as we say, Tedelestai.org website and the many comments that flow through and the gratitude that it's such an excellent place to receive 
the bread of life. We thank you, Father. We thank you for them and for the whole Knoxville outpost and pray that your blessings upon them will always exceed both ours and their expectations. We ask it in the name of our mutual Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks, guys. Another time I experience, and I do this quite often, the pleasure of the Spirit. I I use that word similarly to the main character in that film called The Chariots of Fire, the man who raced for the glory of God. And he said one time to a person that he was close to, he said, when I run, I feel the pleasure of God. And certainly when you find your niche, your gift, your talent, the thing that God called you to do in this life, however mundane it may seem to you or to others, you feel God's pleasure in it. My sister Teresa is a, an artist. She paints paintings and she says she always prays and she feels the pleasure of God in her art as I think we can all relate to that. In my study, I feel the pleasure and the pain of insights being born. Sometimes they come, as Bernard Lonergan said, through a slow and bloody entrance. Sometimes they come unexpectedly after you've grounded out for six or seven hours and then you're seated to watch TV and the insight comes. God just kind of wants you to know it's a matter of grace and not all your efforts. (laughs) But what I've also experienced recently is an unfettered liberty to study and to see that God has granted insights to many, many people, men and women. And I believe that a pastor in our time isn't just a pastor teacher, but a pastor theologian. And God is granting theological insight, and he does it just not just with one man somewhere parked on a mountain or in a third-floor study, as I am, but by conversation, collaboration, and I have much of it right within this sphere of this congregation, which has been extremely beneficial. But I also try to stay on the cutting edge of study because I believe the Holy Spirit reveals insights and advances understanding through collaboration. One of the most monumental books I ever read that affected me strongly was Bernard Lonergan's Method in Theology in which he had a breakthrough, as you know, of the eight theological functional specialties, all of which I use in my study, with the addition of two or three others. And so I've enjoyed and experienced the pleasure of God the Holy Spirit in collaboration and conversation with other theologians. Once, perhaps because of undue restrictions, we were restricted from reading others because... Someone wanted the viewpoint to stay restricted. And so we were restricted. But since the time of, well, several years ago, I began to understand that the Holy Spirit, his desire for me was to study and to have the liberty to study and to enter into a kind of conversation with theologians, all the way beginning with theologians like Thomas Aquinas in medieval times with the 
Capuchin fathers in the Eastern Church, as we've done with Ilaria Ramelli from Origin and Bardason, all the way up through John Scotus, and present theologians whom I re- regard with great admiration, notably Jurgen Moltmann and Douglas Campbell, who wrote a book that I probably have about 60% comprehension on, but it's with him that I want to carry on a little bit of a conversation because I believe that you too will experience the pleasure of the Holy Spirit in this collaboration. In this, at least the first part, will be a conversation with Campbell. Now, in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, and I hope someday you'll give attentiveness to this passage because it's one of the first glimmers of what we call Jewish apocalyptic, apocalyptic revelation, an apocalypse of a certain person, a figure unnamed. In fact, the clues are kind of an enigma. If you were to go outside today and to look into the clouds, look into the sky, watch the formation of the clouds, you might be a little amazed if you saw a man walking there with the same ease that someone walks on a garden path or, in some cases, on water in one or two cases, Jesus and Peter. To see a man walking in the clouds and then to see him approaching a central magnificence, it could be nothing but a throne, a throne of an ancient of days, And you see the Son of Man ushered by various gleaming figures of light, ushered into the presence of this Ancient of Days. And if you could see this Ancient of Days somehow bequeathing to this figure, this enigmatic personage, a kingdom, a kingdom that is totally and completely incorruptible, indestructible, as opposed to the kingdoms represented as beasts in that apocalyptic vision in Daniel chapter 7. You would see that this enigmatic, nameless figure has overcome somehow certain beasts which are representative as kingdoms of this world that ran roughshod over the peoples of this planet. You will see that he somehow overcame the hostility, the oppressiveness, and the barrier between oppressors and perpetrators. And you would see that this kingdom that he received, he immediately bequeathed to an innumerable company. And you'd wonder. In the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verse 13, the prophet offers... An apocalyptic vision involving an enigmatic figure who comes with clouds and is ushered into the presence of one called the Ancient of Days. The only, the only identifying clue we have about this person, he's described as, quote, one like a human being. One like a human being. Or one like a son of man, one like a son of Adam. 
Now, someone who's never read the Bible will wonder at the identity of this figure. But in Romans, we have a similar method used by Paul. There's an enigmatic figure, and he's described or at least identified in Habakkuk. I hope you'll note this passage because Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4b, the second part, in great contrast to the first part where he speaks of a man who's swelled up with his own self-importance and whom God is not pleased with. And that may be a little bit of a dig against someone Paul is embattled with in Romans in a kind of dialectic. Habakkuk 2.4b speaks of a righteous one who, according to the Hebrew text, God is speaking through Habakkuk and he said, the righteous one will be justified by my faithfulness. I looked up the Greek text for this, Dikaios, and I'm not going to belabor you. I'm not going to burden you today with, I'm going to say Greek words, but I'm not going to write them. I'm not going to expect you to remember them because I'm going to give the, the English transliteration or the English translation immediately because this is one of the most important tracts of doctrine we could ever follow anywhere in the scriptures. My righteous one or the righteous one, Hadikaios will live by my faithfulness, says the Masoretic text. The word hodikaios is the righteous one. It is a radical singular. It's a singular of no degree. It's an accusative masculine presence. It's a person, and the person is singularly, just like one like a son of man, an individual like a human being. In fact, a human being, but something more. It's sort of like Ezekiel's vision in Ezekiel one twenty six to 28. And he sees the wheels within the wheels and he sees a movable chariot throne and he sees one with the form of a man, anthropos, same thing, a man, the form of a man. But with the radiance coming from within him is the radiance of Yahweh, of God, the Lord. Who is he? Again, one who's never read the Bible or one who's never read the New Testament will wonder at this figure. Habakkuk also had a reference to a figure. This goes from Romans 1-2. Paul talks about the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ, which is revealed in the writings of the prophets, in the writings of the prophets. And then he uses the supreme example for Romans of the writings of the prophets, specifically the writing of someone you might not expect. You'd expect him to start off with Isaiah or Ezekiel, Jeremiah, or maybe even Daniel. But he starts off with Habakkuk. People name their children Isaiah and Jeremiah. Some even go so far as to name their son Jeremy. But who would name their kid Habakkuk? I mean, I might, but what's his nickname? Habby? I don't know. Then you already have Abby, so anyways. Habakkuk 2.4b of the writings of the prophets. My righteous one, or the righteous one, will live. Again, the Masoretic text or the Tanakh, which is the Jewish text, says this way. 
but the righteous man is rewarded with life for his fidelity. The righteous man is, is rewarded with life for his fidelity. The New English translation of the Septuagint came out as recently as 2007. It says, but the just shall live by my faith. And then the note in the margin rightly says, or my faithfulness. The Holman Christian Standard Bible says, but the righteous one will live by his faith. And in the CSB notes, of course, or his faithfulness. Habakkuk 2.4. You can write, you can draw an arrow, in fact, for your own study. You can do this on your own because everyone draws their own conclusions. But it's amazing how many scholars today, whom I regard with great respect, are climbing up the same mountain and they climb up on different sides. But when they get to a certain peak, they see the same thing. They see Jesus Christ in a radical, glorious significance that they have never seen him in before. And that's all that's happened to me. All that's happened to me in my study of the scriptures is I have come to more and more see my Savior, Jesus Christ, and to see in his face the light of the knowledge of the glory of God shining ever more brightly. It was Habakkuk himself who said ten verses later, In Habakkuk 2.14, his glory shall fill all the earth. His glory shall fill all the earth. So Isaiah's got nothing on Habakkuk. Isaiah has the angels say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of the armies. His glory fills the whole earth. As it already fills all of heaven. Now, Douglas A. Campbell wrote a book called The Deliverance of God, an apocalyptic rereading of justification in Paul. You think the title's tough? I read the book. It's a book that if, you, if I threw it across this place and hit one of you, it would injure you severely. And I'd say I probably have a 60-70% comprehension of it. But he wrote on page 675 of this book about Romans 3.26. And he says the phrase ek pistios. Now, I'm not going to, again, I'm going to give you the English. Ek pistios means on account of faithfulness, because of faithfulness. And he says this phrase ek pistios, speaking in Romans 1.17 first. And again, draw the arrow, Romans 1.2. Begin with 2.4 of Habakkuk. Draw the arrow to Romans 1, 2, to 1, 17, to 3, 21, to 22, to 3, 26, to 6, 7. I'm not going to give you any more hints than that, but you're going to find a strand to which all the rest of the doctrine adheres. And it's almost like you see one like a son of man, and then you say, it's you. It's You know who.
He says here for the first time, and I'm, I'm hoping he's not. I've never met Douglas Campbell. I hope he doesn't get too mad. I'm giving a pretty, re, re, pretty extensive quote today just because of the conversation. He says in 326b, that same phrase, ek pistios, which is on account of faithfulness. Paul resumes its terminology explicitly. Hence, he said, it seems best to read the entire clause in a Christocentric sense. Already I like him, because what if anything, if anything, in my personal study, in my personal life and livingness before the Lord, Christocentric has been the name of the game, the name of the living, the name of the livingness, centered in Christ. He says, Paul... seems to read the entire clause in a Christocentric sense, and especially the article that precedes this programmatic phrase. For an auditor detecting the heroic protagonist, he calls it. This person now, we understand, Hodikaios, is a heroic protagonist in a drama of the ages. He's the hero. The word hero is spread so thin now that it has lost its meaning. There is one heroic protagonist in God's redemptive plan, the Son of Man, who's at ease walking among the clouds, as he is at ease walking in the waves of the sea, as he is walking on a garden path with you. So he says again, it seems best to read the entire clause in a Christocentric sense, and especially the article Hodikaios, the righteous one, that precedes this programmatic phrase. Now, programmatic means it sets the tone for the rest of the epistle. It sets the tone for the rest of RTE, Romans the epistle. Then he says, an auditor detecting the heroic protagonist of Habakkuk 2.4 from Romans 117b, where it says, the righteous one, on account of his faithfulness, will live. What has, been be- what has become or what is prophetic to Habakkuk is history to us. That one has been rewarded with life by his faithfulness, but life not just for himself. He goes on to say, and again, apologies to Doug Campbell if I'm quoting too much of your work, but at least I'm giving credit to where it's due. I have to do this to have the conversation. Tone ek pistios in 326, he says, which is the one who from his faithfulness. Tone ek pistios means who, the one, singular one, who from his faithfulness or as a reward for his faithfulness, we could properly say. And you can look at Romans 3.26 because you, your English Bible doesn't have it. I'm almost guaranteeing that. It probably would have evoked Christ, he says, rather than the Christian. Now, if that's the Christian, the righteous one, whoever that is, any given Christian person who believes, then Romans has one tone to it. And some would call it the Lutheran tone, justification by faith tone. But if that's Jesus Christ and him alone, the epistle takes on an entirely different tone. One like a son of man. 
the man Paul called him, Christ Jesus. The second man, the man not from earth, earthy, but from heaven, walking on the clouds as if they were solid ground, because to him they are. To the resurrection body they will be also. Paul, he says, in Romans 3.26, it would rather evoke Christ as that one. And he says there are explicit cues in the Romans for it being Christ rather than the Christian. Explicit cues. Paul seems to be saying here that God is, quote, right. And I would add, he's right and just. God is right and he's just. You want to know about his justice and his righteousness, his integrity, rooted in his love? God is right. What Romans 3.26 seems to be saying, he says, and we'll find out that he may be saying it more definitely than you imagine, God is right in the very act of liberating, another word for justifying, liberating, liberating that one, that one like a son of man, by means of faithfulness. God is right. He's righteous in acting. He has perfect integrity to liberate this righteous one because of his faithfulness. Whose faithfulness? Both God's and his. God's and his, the fathers and the sons. That's my, my, I'm adding in my conversation to this. Then he says, but this observation takes us to the brink of an important realization concerning the clause's final word. It's as if this son of man is now being identified. I have to write this one in the Greek. It looks like this. The clause's final word in the Greek, the final word in that clause is, I-E-S-O-U-N, Yesun, Jesus, Jesus, just Jesus. Then he goes on to say, although the, the arthrous phrase, arthrous simply means it has an article. Again, I'm just, I'm trying to make it easy for you. It's like, I'm the dentist, I got a drill, but I'm giving you Novocaine. But even that hurts. The dentist asked me recently, do you want Novocaine? I said, only if I really, really need it, because I don't want to walk out here and drool over the, all over my McDonald's hamburger. But so he didn't. He didn't give me Novocaine. He just drilled two, and then he, the third one, he says, you're going to have to need it, and I did. I'd, I'd rather have just the drill than to have that needle going in there. So I understand your difficulty when you're being taught. I'm giving you Novocaine, but even that hurts sometimes. Paul seems to be saying here that God is right in this act of justifying the one by his faithfulness, Jesus. And he says, although this phrase with an article seems to reach back plausibly to the phrases that just precede the final clause where Jesus is identified as a mercy seat, hilastarion, propitiatory, and then as a demonstration or a demonstrable sign in accordance with God's purpose. He says it's still momentarily ambiguous. Sometimes the scripture is momentarily ambiguous. That's why I like to teach first obscurely, 
the lens comes down. I can't see too well with that. How about this one? How about this one? Finally, you got 2020, and I'm sure you've read Second Chronicles 2020 by now. Oh, you haven't? Shame on you. No, I'm only kidding. But read Second Chronicles 2020 sometimes. It's about a 2020 vision and how you get it spiritually. Has a lot to do with today's message. But it's still momentarily ambiguous in 326b. Just who that unnamed ton ekpistios is, that one who by his faithfulness or on account of his faithfulness or due to his faithfulness is, whose fidelity and whose fidelity it is, it's still obscure so far. And everything is still obscure to us compared to what it's going to be at the parousia when we see him face to face. For now we see through a glass obscurely, but then face to face. We're anticipating the appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ. God has designated a time in this world, in the juncture of the ages, a time of conflict, a time of darkness, a time where evil seems to be prevailing. He does it all the more. He allows it all the more so that he can reward combatants in that struggle who share a crown of righteousness with the Lord Jesus Christ and a crown of life for enduring with him. The conversation continues. Douglas Campbell says, it seems the final word in the phrase after saying, still don't know who this ton ekpistios is, the figure whom God is liberating, and perhaps even more precisely, whose fidelity it is. Who is it, and whose fidelity is he talking about? Then he says, it seems that the final word in the sentence, yesun, functions to clarify these ambiguities immediately in explanatory terms. Here's the translation, then, that emerges from Douglas Campbell. God is right in the very act of liberating that one by means of faithfulness, long hyphen, namely Jesus. God is right. Now, this is why I introduced all this with the royal motif in the Psalms. The royal figure cries out to God. The royal Messiah, the anointed one, cries out to God for a deliverance. God answers him and delivers him, gives him life from the dead, but not only life to the king, but life to all of the king's domain and all of the king's subjects, all of the king's men and women, which is all humankind for all time, according to Romans 5.18. If you keep following this arrow, let's go to 5.18 too. Not now yet. I might even have to do this next Sunday. But it goes to 5.18 to 6.7. God is right in the very act of liberating that one by means of faithfulness, namely Jesus. Do you think we need a new English translation? Do you think we need a new American translation that captures the real gospel? I think so. So he then says this. Here's the lens dropped down. No more obscurity, he said. So the figure in question is definitely Jesus, and the fidelity is his as well. Now, Douglas Campbell is from New Zealand. They say things like, as well. 
we say two. So you say, mine two, T-O-O. We say, have a good day. And then someone, and we reply, you too. But they say, you as well. That's English, but then New Zealand's and, you know, the rest of the people as well. So he said, the figure in question is definitely Jesus. And the fidelity is his as well. So if you see this man walking in the clouds, he may turn to you and say, you say, "Ah," and he may show a scar in his hand as he waves. It's you. Now to me, speaking of small lowercase letters, A-R-K, Alan Arnap, to me this forces us to conclude And this is what happened to me. This forced me to conclude, not in a coercive way, but in a way I could not, there was no way I could reply against it. That's all. I don't mean in a coercive, forced way, but it it, it brought me to a conclusion that I couldn't deny that Jesus Christ's person and his faithfulness has universally saving significance. Now listen carefully because the conversation continues. And we had conversations about this book, and we asked questions like, why do guys like this never come to universalism when they're saying it throughout their writings? The only one that really said it explicitly and with guts straight out is Jürgen Moltmann. That's all he talks about, only he fans it out. He does a wonderful job theologically. And I used to be afraid to read writers because I found out, well, they're politically aligned to this and they're politically aligned to that. I don't care about any of that. I don't care about any of that with their alignment. I know if if they got good theology, that's all I want to know. And so I thought, I wondered after working through the deliverance of God whether the author had come to a similar conclusion because he never said, he didn't say as far as I could see in that book, he he didn't say. This has to be universal. But recently, then came 2018. And this is a book you can read without throwing it against the wall every few days and kicking it and threatening to burn it and torch it. This is a book called Paul, An Apostle's Journey. Reads very quickly. It's almost one one guy said that reviewed it. It's racy. So I'm recommending a racy book. It's called Paul and Apostles Journey. And I look what I like to do sometimes is look at the last pages and just see because if he says something stupid at the last page, I'm going to throw the book away or put it on a shelf. I was perusing his latest book, Paul and Apostles Journey, and it's only about 180 pages. And I looked to the closing pages, and I found this observation by Douglas Campbell at the end of his 2018 book on Paul. Listen carefully to this paragraph. I think it's edifying, or I wouldn't do it. He quote, quote, it's a paragraph and a half. He says, as soon as the dreaded word universalist, he puts in quotes, is used... A lot of people just get off the train. You notice that? But I hope, he says, it is obvious by now that this is unnecessary. So far, so good. Even more than this, he says, it might be necessary to stay on the train to preserve God's integrity. Notice that. To preserve 
God, the very opposite of what people attack you for is to you're not preserving God's justice or his righteousness is the very thing that the universalist gospel preserves against that accusation. God is right and just to liberate this one man, this one righteous person by his faithfulness. But as you follow this arrow through, God is also right and just and has perfect integrity to liberate all of humanity with justifying life from the dead on the basis of that one man's faithfulness. You want to attack God's integrity? Attack the universal significance of Jesus Christ by your stayed and stubborn adherence to a doctrine that maligns that integrity. Campbell didn't say that. I did. He's nicer than me. He goes on to say this. Listen carefully. More than this, it might be necessary to stay on that train. That's what I did when I saw this. I said, I can get off this train and preserve my reputation. (laughs) I can stay on this train and preserve God's integrity. Not only that, he says, along with the integrity of Paul's gospel. Then he says this, universalism, and this I, I agree wholeheartedly with Douglas Campbell in this next parenthetical phrase. Universalism, he says, in the sense I am using it here, and this is the sense I'm using it and have been since 2013, is a defense of God's integrity. Then he says, we shouldn't want God's plan to fail. God is God. God gets what he wants, eventually. And God's work is compassionate and perfect. It follows that we should resist reducing Christ in size. making him smaller and less significant than Adam and his work. This is to get things the wrong way around. The plan in Christ is far bigger, better, and more glorious than anything that happens foolishly because of Adam and Eve. So perhaps we need to put things more strongly That's right where I live. Perhaps we ought to put things more strongly. Yeah. Perhaps we ought to put this doctrine so strong that no one can gainsay it or resist it. At the beginning of this, I looked at a promise and I felt the pleasure of God, the Holy Spirit in the promise. I will give you a mouth and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to gainsay or resist. Not successfully, not ultimately. I like Paul. In Philippians 1, 7, when he was in prison, he said, I'm set. I'm appointed for the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. Finally, he says, let me know that I know as yet. This is Douglas Campbell. He's a, he's a scholar. He's been through it. He, if you read the deliverance of God, you know that he's been through some scholarship. He's at Duke University now, I believe. He says, let me say that I know as yet of no good theological arguments that lead me to expect another outcome regarding the scope of the future resurrection besides universalism. 
And then in closing, he says, no other scenario seems to be grounded in Jesus more strongly. If I could shout amen to the house, from the housetops, I would, but I'm not on a housetop. But amen. Nothing, no other theological argument seems to be grounded in Jesus, Yeshua, Yesun, more strongly than that. But here's where we're going to go next with the God-approved livingness. I was pleased for him to say this thing. He said, finally, I expect everyone to be raised in glory, although some rather more shamefacedly than others. Now, for me, that means some will be raised and never think they were and look over and see somebody they never thought would be, and they look at Jesus and they're kind of ashamed because they say, I didn't think your significance was this significant. Red face, unresurrection body, but salvation. So I could not agree more, more with this conclusion. With the fact that universalism, as I am using it also, is a defense of God's integrity. Next time you're asked about what about God's justice, say yes, I'll defend it with all my heart and soul. His justice is defensible. In fact, his justice is manifested most clearly in the universal saving significance of his son, Jesus Christ, in his righteous act to liberate his son because of his fidelity and with his son liberate all humankind by that same fidelity. That's God's justice. If you speak of justice outside of that, you're not getting the point. You're not defending but attacking the integrity of God, though you're ignorant about it, as I was in the times I taught against when I made Jesus a little smaller than he is. That whole search for the historical Jesus was an attempt to reduce him down to a man that lived and died, and, you know, he was socially outcast, and he died, and he's a good example that's about the smallest vision and version of Christ you can have. To defend the gospel, then, is to defend God's integrity. The universal saving significance of Jesus Christ, USSJC as I abbreviate it, is a defense of God's integrity, including his justice and his righteousness, grounded in his love married to his omnipotence. The integrity of God is his righteousness and justice, but you can't leave that alone. His righteousness and justice are rooted in his love that's married to his omnipotence, as well as his omnipresence and his omniscience. God is right and just in justifying Jesus, Romans 3.26, and in justifying Jesus in order to justify all humanity in Jesus with life from the dead. That's where we go to Romans 5.18, not today perhaps, 5.19, where the justified one is Jesus Christ, 8.34, where Jesus is the one who died, and, eight, and then back to 6-7, the one that was justified. 2 Corinthians 5-14, if one died for all, then all died. All died with him. If one died for all and rose, then one who died for all and all died, then all rose together with him. 
And the risen together with him means being justified by his life. Paul wasn't kidding when he said, as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Paul wasn't kidding when he said, all sinned. All have sinned. That means everyone has come under the apocalyptic power of a cosmic power called sin. All have sinned. And keep coming short of the glory of God. Being justified, being justified, that same all, being justified, Romans 3.24, somehow the Romans road always skips the rest of the sentence because it's in another verse numerically. All sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified by the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, justified by grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. No mention of human faith there. And I'll tell you what, it's just as wrong to make a dichotomy out of the believing and the unbelieving as it is to make a dichotomy out of the black and the white, out of the Jew and the Gentile, out of the slave and the free, out of the male and the female. And that's not what Romans 1.16 is doing to everyone who believes. You want to hang your hat on that? You're going to hang your head on a peg that's made of licorice, a licorice whip. Because everyone who believes is embodied in Jesus Christ and his faithfulness. That's why I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Now, all this today, all I'm doing today is really exegeting Romans 1.17 and Romans 3.26 with a reference to the whole epistle. So secondly, I heartily concur that we need to put things more strongly. That's why I holler sometimes. I'm not angry. I'm angry against doctrines that people hold on to that attack the integrity of God. I'm not mad at people. Sometimes I'm mad at myself for not getting this earlier, but then I know that one of the Adamic traits that we all have is a hard and thick skull. And until Calvary's cross penetrates Skull Hill for us and gets through to our brain and sinks into our heart, we're not going to get it. And no matter how much somebody browbeats you, no, how much, no matter how much a preacher yells it from the housetops, you ain't going to get it until God plants the cross into your Golgotha brain. Then you will treasure the old rugged cross until you lay down every one of your afore-treasured trophies. So I heartily concur that we need to put things more strongly precisely because there is no other scenario You say, but I studied and I found something different. Really? Well, I studied nine hours just for this and then 45 years to get to this. And I looked at a lot of scenarios and preached a lot of scenarios. I've been a charismatic. I've been a Pentecostal. I've been a fundamentalist. I've been a dispensationalist. I've been a holy roller. I've been all that stuff. I've searched and seen every kind of theological basis for, for stuff, and I agree wholeheartedly with Campbell, who also did similar. No other scenario seems to be grounded in Jesus more strongly. If another one comes around, 
I'll go for it. I'm staying open. This paragraph, and a ha- but it will have to exceed universalism. And there is something that does, and it's the universal worship that we enter into. So this paragraph and a half succinctly states what my purpose has been since about midway through Rev the book. But really at the beginning of John, when I got to John 1.14, people began to suspect that when he became flesh, he did so to redeem all creation. And one person even said that to me. A fellow pastor said, I knew you were going there when you got to John 1.14. And I said, you did? I didn't. But it built. So, by, I totally agree with this second thing. The second paragraph, or this paragraph and a half, succinctly states my purpose. Put things more strongly. Now that you see it, put it strongly. Preach it. Be instant in season, out of season. Preach the word. Since by his and the Father's faithfulness both, he lives. So, We will and do live also. Once again, statement of the royal king, Jesus Christ, in the upper room, John 14, 19, says to his disciples as representatives of all humankind, because I live, you will live also. I live because of my faithfulness. You will live because of my faithfulness. He didn't say, because I live, you will live also if you believe. He said, because I live, you will live also. John 14, 19, period. Or as the German says, punct. Punctuation mark, period. Punct. I've been punked by God. Put a period at the end. Jesus' faithfulness, period. Now, And contrary to my loud vocalizing today, the effect of this understanding is peace. It's the demolition of barriers of mutual resentment, not only in Rome that Paul is demolishing, but in our world today. Not just in the church, but in our world today. This gospel demolishes barriers. Ephesians 2.14, Jesus is our peace. So the next time somebody in your job says, Jesus, say, is our peace. Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus, yeah, by his faithfulness, you live, and so do I. We'll all live. There's a reason why God lets his son's name be used in vain so many times in this age because it will all turn to praise. Imagine that chorus of curses turning into a chorus of praise. The number of times we hear that word in cursing today is remarkable because the closer the liberator, the more the chains chafe. The closer the liberating the more the chains chafe. If you're in chains and you see your liberator walking on clouds coming toward you, your chains chafe more than ever because they're closer to your liberation. 
When a lifeguard saves a person from drowning, the person that he's saving is usually punching him. When God raises up leaders in the time of the judges as saviors for the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel always fought against them. They wanted to stone Moses. They crucified Jesus. We did. Because being saved from drowning in our panic, we thrust out and punch and hit and hurt. But that's where God's love is. One rabbi said, I wish I had half the love for my fellow rabbi that God has for a rascal. In closing, therefore, God didn't condemn humanity at the cross. He condemned sin. God doesn't condemn one people group to show another people group is right. God condemns the hostility between the people groups. This morning I saw the story, just a flashing moment. I give about 10 seconds to every 10 hours of Bible study to watch news. And there was a Christian woman and a female, a woman who was a Muslim scholar. And I almost judged, well, she's going to say something against the Bible because they took the Bible away from the Air Force in certain places and put the uh, a general book of faith there. And I said, she's going to knock the book. She's going to knock the Bible and be glad that they took the Bible away. And so a little voice inside me said, don't be so quick to judge. Skullhead. Let me drive the cross into your brain for a minute. She was interviewed. The first woman said, oh, yes, our nation was built on Judeo-Christian ethics and da, 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 the Bible, and why can't they take away the Bible? And, they should. and then they asked the Islamic scholar, the woman, the Islamic scholar, what do you think? And she said, I heartily agree. They should never take away the Bible. And then she explained why. And she saw this unity among humanity that many Christians don't see. So I got rebuked. So I came here on the wave of a rebuke. The effect of this understanding is peace among believers. God didn't condemn humanity at the cross. He condemned sin. He condemned the hostility between people and peoples and people groups. And by the resurrection of Jesus, he ended the universal reign of death. In his death, he condemned sin. In his resurrection, he ended forever the reign of death. Death has to cough up every one of its victims. And I always like to look at 1 Timothy 3.16, where the one manifested in the flesh was justified by the Spirit, Jesus Christ. So in closing, I do want to close this. I'm going to close this off. I'm only halfway through because I had another scholar I wanted to get into it with, and he's a younger guy, so I'll probably slap him around a little first, but no, I'm only kidding. When you're old, you do that kind of stuff. You whippersnapper, that kind of thing. You start thinking of the word whippersnapper. And I don't even know what that means. And you say things like, someone's running on your lawn, and you say things like, Get off my lawn. No, you don't. (laughs) 
What about 116 then? Look back to what we, we have to do this because it's a stumbling block to so many people. 116. What do we say about to all who believe in Romans 116, to the Jew first and also to the Greek? What do we say about that? Does that mean that only those who believe experience the power of God for salvation? Does that mean that only those who believe are saved? Let me say that. Well, if you look at 1 Corinthians 118, to those who the word of the cross appears as foolishness, they are presently perishing. That means they simply are without the liberating understanding of the gospel. But to those to whom the word of the cross is God's wisdom and power, they are being saved. But the point that's being made in Romans 117 I'll ask and answer it quickly, and then we'll hit, hit it in subsequent messages. And I think we only have Wednesday this week, but we'll maybe even start Wednesday. Does this mean that only those who believe will have the power of God for salvation? Emphatically, a no, exclamation point, times seven. Everyone who believes ultimately includes all of humankind because Jesus Christ embodied faithfulness for all. That's the point he gets to. Give you a preview of things that are coming is Romans 5.18. By his one act of obedience, by his one act of faithfulness, by his one act of obedience, all without exception. Not all kinds of people, all people without exception, all groups without exception, all the families of the earth without exception will receive justifying life. Therefore, being justified, Romans 5.1, if there's nothing about our faith in Romans 3.25 and 26, but only about God's faithfulness in the propitiation for our sins, only about Jesus Christ's faithfulness, then what does Romans 5.1 mean when it says we're therefore being justified by faith? It should be faithfulness. Therefore, being justified by faithfulness, that aforementioned faithfulness of Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. Who's we? Jews and Greeks, Gentiles and Jews, pagans and educated, uneducated and educated. All of us. So Richard Hayes, one more guy, I'll quote, and we have this conversation with him too, was right to say that, quote, Paul's gospel presents Jesus Christ as the protagonist sent by God whose faithful action brings deliverance and blessing to humanity. To put another distinction between believing and unbelieving is to do the same thing as people did back then, the Jew and the pagan. You can say these labels either with contempt or with undue pride. We can do it with American. When I went to uh, Hungary once, they said, don't be arrogant. They don't like arrogance in Americans. And I didn't even know I was arrogant. And they said, what do you do at a home Bible study? I said, I do a radio show. And the pastor said, you shouldn't have told them that. And I said, why? He says, they don't even know what a radio show is. They don't even have power here. And then I said, well, now I know I've been eat- why I've been eating watermelons for three days. That's all I ate for a few days there. And I'll tell you the story about why I didn't get mugged because of that. I'll tell it anyways. (laughs) We're on our own. We're not with the group. I'm in an alley. 
I have nothing but blood red melons that they sell on the side of the road. Because I, I tried one of their hamburgers and it was raw horse meat. I ain't eating no raw horse meat. So I had this round blood red. I mean, you cut into it, it was blood red. Someone gave me a butcher knife from their apartment. I cut this melon in half and was eating it voraciously. I came out of the alley. Two men approached me. And I kind of nodded and moved over here. And they moved over here. And then I nodded and moved over here. And they got closer and moved over here. Then they looked down, and I had in my hand a butcher knife and a paper towel. And I was wiping red blood juice off it after coming out of an alley. I swear, both guys go, (laughs) and went way around me and took off. God preserves us in funny ways. But that's to say this. We are saved by the blood of Christ. We are justified by his blood. If while we were still sinners, Christ died. If while we were ungodly, Christ died. If the righteous one in 1 Peter 3.18 died for all the unrighteous to bring us to God, what do we have to glory in except for the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ? Inclusio with your song, Victoria. All right. Thank you, Father. We thank you for the opportunity once again to look into your word where light shines forth. The exposition of your word gives light and gives understanding to the simple, to the naive. And we are simple. We are naive. In that sense, we are singular. We just want to know what your word says, Father. We don't want to know what men think of it. We just want to know what it says. And when you've given men insight into what it says, thank you that we can have the glorious collaborating, collaboration with them in Christ. Thank you that you're allowing the body of Christ in many quarters and many places, some of which we can't even imagine. You're revealing the universally saving significance of your son, Jesus Christ. That name, Jesus, at which every knee will genuflect willingly and every tongue will sing glorious praises to his name. The name, Yeshua the name, Jesus, the name, Jesus, the one, the Son of Man, who gives his kingdom to all. We thank you for it in Christ's name.